G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very, very much. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. As another reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we do this in the studio. So our apologies there. Um, you know, we're hoping at some stage we can get back into the studio, but until health and safety say it's okay, of course, we're still doing it remotely. And of course, it's very hard for me to get my students in on campus right now because uh, most of the buildings are still closed. But eventually we will get back and our recordings will be a lot easier. And also the experience for our students will be a lot better too, because there's nothing better than being in the studio with all the equipment around you. It's, it's quite a quite an interesting feeling. And I know it was a bit scary for me my first time around, but it makes things a lot easier now. So today, I would like to introduce you to Safa Moussad, who is doing a PhD in English Language and Literature under the supervision of Dr. Petra Fashinger. Welcome back to Grad Chat, Safa. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. No, I hope you all listened to our show last week, but Safa joined us last week for our show on Scholars of Colour in Watson Hall. And so I thought it would be great to have her come back to talk more thoroughly about her own research, because the other three that joined Safa last week, Suyin, Jordan, Aprajita, they've already been on Grad Chat. So it was only right that we brought Safa on this week. So <laughs> sorry about that, Safa. We put you in the deep end there, didn't we? And said, you know, you, we sort of conspired against you to say you needed to be on the show again. Oh, that's okay. I'm hoping this will help me get back into writing. So. <laughs> And th and that's a bit of a tricky one right now, isn't it? Because we're all working from home. It's uh, when you don't have your colleagues around, sometimes you need that extra push from your mate saying, what, are you writing today? And it's not, not so easy working from home and, and getting the motivation to write. And particularly when now the, the summer's finally reached us. So how are you finding that? I kind of trained myself to have my home be a work-free zone. And I've always been working from the library and now it's closed. So it's, it's very slow. Some days are better than others, but, you know, we're coping. <laughs> and I think one thing about COVID-19, it's, it's shown us all that we can adapt to changes and what's going on around us. And even though it's not really wanted to be able to do, it's kind of made us have to do it and realize that we can adapt, like I said. So eventually the libraries, I hope, will be open for you to be able to get back there. It's good now that they're doing the curbside pickup for some things but you know when when the old health and safety tell us tell us it's okay then I'm sure there'll also be a strategy there to allow some of you to get back in and actually work from the library as opposed to from home so hopefully that will come sooner rather than later for you if that's what you're the way that you normally like to work yeah, I can't wait for that. But until everything is safe, yeah. And that's unfortunately what we always got to keep in mind is that bit at the end that says we have to be safe. So um, there we go. But in the meantime, your work, as we heard last week, you're doing some fascinating work. And so that's what I really wanted to be able to 
the listeners to hear about some of the things that you've been working on. Now, you're in English language and literature. And, and I've said this before on, on previous interviews from people from English. I used to always think when I hear about English language and literature, you know, it's the Bronte brother, Bronte sisters and Shakespeare and uh, Chaucer and things like that. But of course, it, it's a lot more than that. Um, and as we've seen from even your colleagues, Suyin and Jordan, the, the breadth of work that they're looking at really showcases how, how wide English literature is. And so your research topic is the cultural production of Muslim youth of the 1.5 and second generation. And so I was just wondering, can you just give us an overview of what you're trying to do there? What's, what is your research about? And how does that come into English literature? Um, there we go. But in the meantime, your work, as we heard last week, you're doing some fascinating work. And so that's what I really wanted to be able to, the listeners to hear about some of the things that you've been working on. Now, you're in English language and literature. Mm-hmm. And, and I've said this before on, on previous interviews from people from English. I used to always think when I hear about English language and literature, you know, it's the Bronte sisters and Shakespeare and uh, Chaucer and things like that. But of course, it, it's a lot more than that. And as we've seen from even your colleagues, Suyin and Jordan, the, the breadth of work that they're looking at really showcases how, how wide English literature is. And so your research topic is the cultural production of Muslim youth of the 1.5 and second generation. So I was just wondering, can you just give us an overview of what you're trying to do there? What's, what is your research about? And how does that come into English literature? Mm-hmm. So just a little bit of an overview. I am interested in the identity construction of Muslim youth who grew up in the shadow of 9-11 and the years that came after that, which, which are sometimes referred to as the terror decade or, you know, the global war on terror. And so these, unfortunately, these young, you know, now they're young adults, they grew up in a time where there was just a lot of social and political change and reform, heavy surveillance, new anti-terrorism acts happening and things like that. So even though they were too young to even remember or witness the events of 9-11 or weren't even born there, they are the ones who are now heavily targeted by these policies. So this, of course, manifests in different ways in the lives of Muslim youth. And that's why I find it really interesting to analyze how their identities have been shaped by this new world that they entered and how they're dealing with that and how they're reconfiguring that. So Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to argue is that they have experienced what is referred to as cultural trauma, which is when a collective group have been subjected to uh, a destabilizing or horrendous event which marks their group consciousness or their generation. So they become, they go from being an age category, like a generation being a biological age category, into a social category. So they kind of become active, an active generation. And what I'm, what I'm finding is that the way that they are responding to these 
events and, and to kind of these things that are really making a mark on their lives is through art and art in a more liberal way, I would say. Like traditionally in literature, we look at, you know, literature, like novels, poetry, sometimes graphic novels, but I'm, I want to look at TV shows, comedy skits, spoken word poetry, hip hop, and they are cultural productions, but they're also narratives. And that's why I really want to look at the ways that they are in the way that they find the best medium that they can express uh, all of these right. things. So I'm, I'm going to ask a, a pretty obvious question. Well, maybe it's not so obvious, but so we're talking about the arts here. But how, how does um, stand-up comedy or political satire and things fit into English language and literature? I would say rhetoric. Um, comedy is very interesting to me because an example is Hassan Minhaj. So he's an American comedian. Now he has a Netflix show called Patriot Act. And he also had a Netflix right. special series called The Home- Homecoming King. It's really interesting the way that he cushions his critique, I would say, and response right. in uh, through comedy. So it's really it's really a way of manipulating narratives to find a common ground, which is comedy. So to invite everybody, like mainstream media, in a really more general sense, audience of all kind, not just Muslim, to really invite them. But then also through that, talk about you know his own experience growing up as an Indian American right. um, and, and things like that. So. What I found is that through comedy, these comedians humanize and normalize Muslims. Right. In a way, almost I, I've heard of it referred to as slow encroachment to kind of make uh, the Muslim figure more of a just a normal person. Right. Well, it's interesting, actually, because having heard your answer just then, it suddenly dawned on me. And I don't know why I didn't think of this in the beginning. But when I asked about how does it fit into English language and literature, well, that's exactly what Shakespeare did, because his Shakespeare's works were for the theatre. He wrote it down, but it was for the theatre. It was people saw it more on on the stage as opposed to just reading it. So I guess you know political satire and stand up comedy is exactly the same. At some stage, they've probably written it down, and now they're just performing it. They're expressing it. So yeah. I guess I yeah. answered my own question there, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> So, so let's get let's open up a bit more about some of the things that you've been looking at. So, can you tell me, from what you've seen so far, how were young Muslims impacted by 9-11 and the war on terror? And that's a pretty broad question, then. Yeah. So I kind of touched on that a little bit. I would say, predominantly, it created a a cultural trauma for them, right? So mm-hmm. they have been placed under a magnifying glass and, and they've been put in in categories that are just very, very restricting. So after 9-11, there is again, like, you know, a changing in policies, a lot of hysteria, anti-terrorism acts. And then right. it, it obviously started in the US, but the US expected its closest ally, Canada, to stand in solidarity right. with them, and which happened, and there were a lot of back and forth of of uh, these, you know, uh, communications happening between the two countries. And it's not just Canada; a lot of European countries, a lot of Western countries, also based their anti-terrorism laws and acts on the U.S.'s Patriot Act, 
So right. in a way, it's it's really just kind of all all of you know Western countries banding together, um, targeting this community and really really having there are certain in the U.S. I read a couple of articles where there were informants. Um, which obviously is not surprising at all. But what was surprising to me that I read recently was some informants would infiltrate Muslim communities to try to weed out and see if there's anything going on. But some actually also tried to coerce people, like they tried to coerce young Muslims to commit acts that would be uh, perceived as terrorism so that they could catch them, which I thought was like, why would you even do that? But anyway, so... There's definitely a lot of things happening. This information may not be entirely out there, but for young Muslims who are within these communities, it's it's like a thing that happens to them on a daily basis. So then why, because of all the things that did go on post 9-11, why, why target for your, for your own work, why the interest in youth of the 1.5 and second generation? Because mm-hmm. wouldn't um, it, you, you'd yeah. like to think it would have... A, would have had a bigger impact on uh, the adults. So it does, like it has an impact on Americans as well. It has an impact on Canadians. But for young Muslims of the 1.5 and second generation, I find their positionality very interesting. So to me, it's what I chose to look at because they are already in this liminal space between being children of immigrants. So they have connections with their parents' cultural background, but then they also have roots in, in their own countries, in, in their Western their Western range, right? So they have their roots mm-hmm. in Canada and the U.S. So they're really in this in-between state. And then, of course, the religion is also an added element. So they're carriers of three you know, heritages. They're cultural, Western, and Muslim. So add on top of that Islamophobia and anti-terrorism that they experience at schools, in public, and kind of manifests in different ways. So add that, Mm -hmm. you know, on top. And how are they going to, how are they going to really figure out how to go about, you know, and and form their identity? So to me, it was just a really, really interesting subject of analysis. That's good. Really, it's by no means an, an easy task to really negotiate, you know, being somebody who is, you know, part you know, ethnic, part Western, also uh, trying to observe uh, your faith, things like that. Yeah. Right. So can you give me some examples of misrepresentations of Muslims and Muslim youth, particularly? Mm-hmm. I think it was a year after 2001, the president of the U.S. at the time, George W. Bush, came out and really gave such a weird, wishy-washy speech saying that, on the one hand, he said, we need to fight Islamofascism, which, you know, putting the word fascism with Islam, it's going to forever mark, you know, it's, it's always going to be perceived in that way because of the way that it was put, put out. But then on the yeah. other hand, he also said... Not all Muslims are bad Muslims. There are good Muslims. There are bad Muslims and good Muslims. There are extreme Muslims and moderate Muslims. So he created these very, very narrow binary categories for Muslims to be placed in. And usually it's like all Muslims are bad unless proven good. So um, that's the way that Muslims have been discussed in the last two decades. And particularly with youth, 
they are seen as a very threatening segment because in general, youth are unpredictable. In a way, they're seen as a representation or a metaphor for the future, but they're also, they also right. pose great danger. Muslim youth particularly, they're usually referred to as like, you know, domestic terrorists. What was it called? Like a born... Things like terrorist, yeah, something like that. Like uh, people, yeah, which is which is very, very, very wrong because we shouldn't look at stereotypes. I mean, stereotypes themselves are are not good because we know everyone is an individual. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, in terms of the examples of stereotypes, so men of of all ages are always referred to as angry, uh, extreme terrorists, things like that, and then women oppressed, voiceless. And, you know, very patriarchal. And all of these stereotypes really started way before 9-11. They were just very, like, Mm -hmm. they were just increasingly aggravated. Right, yes. 9-11 aggravated a lot of things, rightly or wrongly. But all of these stereotypes are really Orientalist and go back centuries ago for pre-colonial age. So what I'm interested in is how they flip over these stereotypes both so there's a gender dimension in what i'm looking at both work by muslim women and muslim men they really tackle right. the stereotypes that are directed at them and then they reformulate it so instead of a figure of an oppressed woman they present a figure of a liberated muslim woman who is very tech savvy technology right. is very very prominent in a lot of the the, the research that i found keep, they keep in mind the way that they represent themselves publicly, especially if they choose to wear the hijab. And then for Muslim right. men, it's also the same in that they they utilize things like comedy, satire, um, sports sometimes to right. flip over again that ag- angry Muslim man into the young, hip Muslim man who is very, very, really into uh, Western culture, into pop culture, but they they find a balance between their Western side and their Muslim side, and it right. kind of meshes together in a in a way that really presents hybridity. But right. I don't want to idealize because there are some examples that I find where they're not always success stories. So there are some kind of narratives that show, I I would say maybe like an identity crisis. And this usually happens with, this usually happens when you see the child generation struggling with negotiating with their parent generation because their parents are not going to understand the the, the specific circumstances that their children are experiencing. It was interesting because I read uh, just before Christmas, actually, a, a book from Hassan Gadi Santur called The Youth of God. And that's exactly that, a young boy who was wanting to do well academically and everything, but, you know, loved his religion and doing doing everything right with his religion and things, enjoyed his academics, wanted to go further. But it was how he's getting pulled between different things. And um, mm-hmm. it was a bit of a struggle for him. But it was interesting that he was going through that and how well well written this book was. Um, so 
what are some of the prom- you, you mentioned the difference there's a, some differences with the um, men versus women but what are some of the prominent themes muslim youth discuss in their art and what forms of art are they using for each theme because <clears throat> i would imagine the spoken word would be would play a big a big role there so the way that i have it organized right now is that i'm looking at both themes and genres and how they interact because for like the example that I mentioned, comedy, it makes sense because it makes sense to use comedy when you're trying to kind of like have a foot at the door in, in, in mainstream media and become more palatable, right? So it makes sense to, right. to use social media, to, uh, to use more accessible outlets. Some of the other, other themes that are closely connected to genre are intergenerational tensions and how young Muslims interact in society in the microcosm, so society as represented in schools. So what I'm trying to argue is that schools represent a micro level representation of larger society. So the issues that they grapple with in terms of bullying, teacher apathy, peer pressure, a, a, on a smaller scale, the issues that they might face once they enter society. So YA literature, young adult literature, is obviously very significant in that because it shows, it shows the relationship between the parent and child. Already there, there's, you know, just naturally, there's a power dynamic when the child becomes a young adult. There's a power dynamic between the parent and child, right? But then right. the generational tension escalates a little bit more when Islamophobia becomes part of an aspect of that. It creates a schism sometimes between the parent right. child, the parent and the child. In YA literature, I'm also looking at rites of passage. So what are the particular rites of passage that Muslim characters have to experience in their coming of age narratives? And are they writing some of this in poetry as well? Yeah, I found a couple of print poetry, so just poetry collections. I gotcha. haven't really, I haven't really found ones that mesh into what I'm, what I'm trying to focus on. But in right. terms of spoken word poetry, that there's a lot more that can be said about that. So for spoken word poetry, as opposed to, as opposed to comedy, where comedians are trying to really make Muslims more palatable, so that they eventually right. the logic behind that what i'm what, what i think is is that eventually muslims are just going to be part of mainstream society right so like in right. In, in really representing them through these platforms eventually they're going to be the norm with right. spoken word poetry coming out of spoken po- word poetry is a branch of rap and hip-hop culture which is predominantly kind of has African-American roots right. and was used as a political tool in the civil war, uh, the civil rights era, right? right? So I'm looking at the intersectionality between how young spoken word artists, Muslim artists are using spoken word poetry and how this actually goes back to African-American uh, hip-hop artists uh, among amongst whom are, are Muslims as well. So there's a huge... Right huge Muslim African-American community, although sometimes they're marginalized, but I think it's important to discuss them because they really paved the way for a lot of newer generation Muslims. So I'm looking at the interaction between 
between these two communities and how they're using this medium to express political grievance. So they're not they're not interested in in being palatable, they're more confrontational. So really comparing the mediums and how they're used, I think yeah. brings about differences in how the artists that I'm looking at diverge. So even though the common ground is that they have experienced a cultural trauma that really made a mark on them, they do diverge in their response. Right, right. So have you found, though, because you're talking about North America, so, you know, US and Canada, have you found any differences or similarities between these youth in in what they're saying Mm -hmm. or what they're feeling? I would say in Canada, from what I can see right now, hybridity is more of a possibility than it than it is in in America. In America there is I would say it's mostly political dissent and a scholar that I found uh, referred to as because they cannot because they're not seen as citizens in the regular sense, they are circumventing certain ways that they are positioned in society to pose themselves or present themselves as citizens in a cultural sense through responding to the state. So they're kind of really making a mark uh, for themselves. Uh, One thing that I found that's similar in both is there's really a sense of the word would be dislocation compared to other other diasporic or transnational literatures that I read from other communities. There's no, I don't see emphasis in geography, in, in locality. So this right. tells me that they are still trying to make themselves more appear more as like part of the fabric, part of the social and national fabric. Right, Whereas, right. For example, like if if you think about Dion Brand, um, her her literature is always always heavily based in in Toronto, right? So Toronto yes. is always seen as a character as well, and how these various ethnic characters that she discusses, how they interact with the city. I don't see that happening yet in Muslim literature. So I think there's still a little bit more work that needs to be done to maybe they don't still, they don't view themselves as part of the national fabric or they're struggling with doing that because they are, they have not been welcomed thus far. Thus far. Okay, so I'm going to finish off with one more question. And so my last question is, what are you hoping to come from this study that you're doing? I mean, are you looking at the youth to embrace their cultural identity more? Uh, Are you looking to see an opportunity to show what our Muslim youth are going through and hopefully make others realise this and make change? I mean, look what's happening now with the Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And as you said, there's a lot of African-American men and women who are Muslim and things. So what are, you, what are you trying to show with this study of yours and where do you want it to go next? Mm-hmm. One of the first things that, that, that I want to show is that they, is that coming from an active generation, that is, that those are the things that they experienced in their cultural trauma and in, in their generational consciousness. And then again, becoming an active generation all of these things contribute to social change. So the lens that I'm looking at, that I'm kind of approaching my work through, these are the certain circumstances, and it's not just 
you know, ex- unique to Muslim communities. These are the circumstances that contribute social change. Like, again, what's happening in the Black Lives Matter, what happened in the civil rights era, what happened after World War II. So I think there is definitely a potential for a change in the way that Muslims have been discussed. It's going to be slow, but there's, they're heading to that direction and it's spearheaded right. by Muslim youth. That's the thing. The difference between Muslim adults and Muslim youth is that they see themselves as the vanguards. They are the ones who are obliged to do this. Ultimately, I think what they what they are trying to do through their art is to carve a place for themselves, but also to ensure futurity for other generations. So I think they're creating futurism is what ultimately I, uh, I believe is what they're trying to do through their art. And again, I think normalizing Muslims so that they become more palatable. Well, I think you've done a great job. Um, I know you've got a long way to, well, not necessarily a long way to go, but there's there's a lot for you to look at. So I take my hat off to you because someone's got to do it right and make us make some changes here. So if you can do that through your work, that's fantastic. So I just want to say thank you so much, Safa, for coming on because it's been a pleasure to listen to to what you're doing and I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much. I do have a long way to go, but it's because uh, it's so hard to focus. (laughs) I'm sure you'll get back to that. No problem at all, because you seem to be very focused on your topic. So that's fantastic. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.